And let's take our Bibles this afternoon and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Of course, we started um, on Tuesday in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We read verse 19 and 20, which we dealt with the principle of ownership. But we're going to go back one verse. And you'll notice that these two things are, are tied together once again. The idea that God owns your body. He gave it to you. He created it. He bought it. He dwells in it if you are a saved individual. And he's the owner. So that means he can say what goes and what doesn't. The context of that is kind of interesting in verse number 18, which we'll read in just a moment. But today, I want to talk to you a little bit about what the Bible says about romance. Ah, the lovely subject of romance. Guy meets girl. They fall in love. They get all googly-eyed looking at each other, staring into each other's eyes. They get married right off into the sunset. How do we say it? Um, And they lived happily ever after. It's a wonderful subject. And actually, when you think about it, all the subjects we've talked about this week are actually good things. Dress is a good thing. All right? I'm glad all of you are dressed today. All right? Music is a good thing. And you know what? Romance is a good thing. But as with all good things that God has created, when sin gets involved, when the devil gets his greasy, grimy fingers into it, uh, he has the ability, he has a way of um, uh, tainting absolutely everything. Um, We're going to have a word of prayer. We're all sort of straggling in on the last chapel. And that way we'll all be set and ready to go um, to get started this afternoon. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, the manual that it is, and how it helps us, how it answers so many of our questions, how it gives us clear guidance. Thank you for your principles that are timeless. They are just as true when they were written, just as applicable when they were written as they are today, even though times have changed, cultures have changed, people in some respects have changed, technology has changed, but your principles remain the same. And I, I thank you that we can go back to your principles and get regrounded. And I thank you, Lord, for just this study once again, for me to be able to go back and once again be grounded in what you have to say so that I can, in the proper way, set up the standards that you want me to establish in my own life. I pray that you'd bless this time. I pray that the young people's hearts would be open and receptive, that we would kind of set aside our preconceived ideas, what thoughts we might have had on this issue, and just approach your word and just say, God, what do you have to say? And I pray that you bless our our time these next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. What is or what has been in the past probably one of the most contentious standards? Remember, we distinguished between a biblical principle and a standard, all right? Can somebody tell me, I mean, you've been here all three days, what is the difference between a biblical principle and a standard? This is very important that we understand the distinction between the two. What's the difference, Josh? The difference in biblical 
standard is clearly displayed in the Bible. Uh, <coughs> sorry, a biblical principle is clearly displayed in the Bible. A standard is what you program. All right, so he almost flipped them, but he got it right. All right, the principle is what we find in the Bible. It does not change. We can revisit it over and over again. The standard is then where we choose, or maybe a better way to define it would be, the standard would be how do we apply the principle to real life, all right? What are the practical implications? Where do I want to uh, establish my line or my fence? We've used that term. And probably one of, and and of course, I, I should add that as an institution, as a school, and as a church, for certain things, we have to draw lines, And those lines aren't biblical principles, but those lines are we want to protect the principle so that we don't violate it. So here is where we're going to to put our line. We're We're going to put our fence. And so one of the more contentious standards where we have chose to set up some lines, some boundaries, is um, the area of romance or guy-girl relationships. You should understand, if you don't understand this already, just to be clear... Uh, if you're involved um, in, in the school specifically and you have a romantic relationship, private communication, that sort of thing with, uh, with a you know, member of the opposite sex, that is grounds for um, some measure of discipline in the school or hopefully not, but eventually leading to maybe even being put out for that. Um, and that, we've had to do that in the past. And that's a, that's a standard, that's a rule that, is, that has received a lot of, uh, when I was your age is when we were kind of first coming to this understanding, coming to this place, and it was very contentious. There was a lot of disagreement about, about this, but that was a standard. But that standard was then informed by the biblical principle. And it's, it's easy to get to the place where we kind of just throw around emotionally charged arguments about this issue, why we agree, why we disagree, um, but what's most important, again, is, if we, is, is that we go and revisit what the Bible says. What are the biblical principles? If all we understand is the rule, it creates big problems. And let me try to explain this to you. If, if, all, if, if you graduate, if you leave your teen years and all you understand is the rule, I'm not allowed to date, I'm not allowed to have a relationship. If all you understand is that one of two things is going to happen. One, you'll graduate, you'll, you'll, you'll grow, you'll, be, you'll um, um, grow into uh, adulthood, and you'll have this idea, you know, for young ladies, the idea is boys bad, boys bad. Boy, it's like, a, you know, blaring in your head, boys bad, boys bad. And if anyone tries to ever, you know, like talk to you, it's kind of like boys bad, boys bad. That's all you get. Why? Because you didn't, you didn't understand the principles. You just understood the rule. But what's, and that's one way, one situation it creates. What's more common is the other side, which is all I know is I'm not allowed to do that in my teen years or my high school years, which means as soon as I graduate, woohoo, complete freedom. I can do whatever I want. The problem is you have cut yourself off, you've disconnected yourself from the direction that God wants to give. And I'll say this, these principles perhaps, and maybe this isn't the proper way of saying it, but I think you'll understand my heart. 
these principles are even more helpful in your single years than they are in your teen years. That's not to say, you know, one's better than the other. But they're even more helpful when you actually come to the place where now you're ready for marriage and you're ready to pursue marriage. Uh, they're, they're actually more helpful for you and more uh, a, a critical that you understand them. Because if not, you'll be guilty of, have you ever heard the phrase, we throw out the baby with the bathwater? And that was the very idea that, you know, everyone back in the day, I know you're going to think this is gross, but they would, you know, they would get the hot water. Everyone would bathe in that water. So your imagination goes what the water looked like after everybody who hadn't bathed in a week um, used that water to bathe and everyone's there. And the water is so murky and, y- and, and you can't see through it that you don't even realize one of the kids is still in there. So you throw out the baby with the bath water. All right. And that's kind of a funny but it's, it's, a good, it's a good way of understanding this. Because if all you understand is the rule, you will get to the place where you'll say, well, the rule doesn't apply to me. I'm no longer in high school. I'm no longer a teenager. You know, I'm an adult now. And so you will throw out the rule, and you will throw out all the principles that undergird that rule. And you cut yourself off from the from the help that God desires to give you. So I don't want either of those things for you or for our church. We need to understand what are the principles that God has given us so that you understand, okay, I I can see why they drew some rules, they made some rules, they made some standards regarding those principles, and now I need to make some rules and some standards in my own life regarding this issue. So what does the Bible say about romantic relationships? Well, a lot of what the Bible says is pretty clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. And um, you let your eyes wander to verse 19. We dealt with it at the beginning of the week, right? You sin against your own body? Who owns your body? What? No, you're not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? We talked about that. The sin of fornication, which fornication is a kind of an umbrella terms that, term that refers to all of sexual sin that is contrary to God's standard. All of it. Um, And if you're involved in that, if you're involved in sex outside of the marriage relationship, and yes, even romance outside of the marriage relationship, it is extremely harmful. There's even, in verse 18, like a separation a little bit between, hey, there's sins that every man does that's without the body, but fornication, he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Proverbs describes it as a deep wound. You get a deep wound to your soul. And we don't have time to dig into all of that, but God knows what he's talking about. And anybody who's actually experienced that could tell you a thousand times over that that is true. And they bear the scars of it. So we understand that. We're supposed to flee from uh, romance, from sexual relationships outside of God's plan. But then we also know Hebrews 13, we're going to go there, not now, but just in just a little bit. Hebrews 13 starts with the phrase, marriage is honorable. God created marriage. God created sex. 
And the Bible is very clear that God created sex to be a pleasurable thing that is enjoyed between a husband and wife. That's what the Bible teaches. So how do we, how do we navigate this? We get to the place where marriage to get and, and, and enjoy that relationship, which is honorable, which God says is, is right, it's good, while also avoiding fornication. So here, that's the path, all right? So how do we get over here and not go down this path? And there's a couple of very helpful principles. And I want you to write these down, not only because I'm grading your notes, but because, again, it's the principles that are important. First principle, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. So go ahead and turn there, and then I'll give it to you. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. This one's basic and obvious. However, um, there is... You would be surprised at the ability to bypass, go around, skirt around what God says in order to go after what you want. There, has been, there have been people who have sat in your very seat that I remember their faces. I could tell you their names. And even this obvious principle they had a hard time with. Um, but anyway, look at verse 14. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness... And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? He's making a point, all right? Then the point is this. Don't be unequally yoked. It is the principle of the unequal yoke. And what are we talking about here? Well, Paul is clearly laying out that you should be extremely careful to avoid very close, intimate relationships with those who are lost. Now, that, doesn't, that does not mean you should treat them like they have the plague. That does not mean that you, you're not kind and loving to them. It does not mean that you don't reach out and care for them. But it does mean that you should avoid very close, intimate relationships where you are sharing your heart and, and you are, are sharing counsel back and forth with someone who is not a believer, someone who, who is unrighteous. They, they, they've never experienced the righteousness of Christ in their life because they've been born again. Somebody who is a child of darkness because they've never been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We ought to avoid those relationships. That's the principle. But think about this. What relationship is more close and more intimate, what human relationship is more close and more intimate than the relationship between a husband and wife? There ought not to be any relationship that is closer and more intimate than that. That is the ultimate of intimacy, is the relationship between a man and his wife. So God is telling us that, okay, you should avoid those relationships in general, but especially the marriage relationship which is the closest relationship of all. So there is the principle of unequal yoke. You ought not to have a marriage relationship and therefore a quote-unquote, uh, if you want to use the term dating or whatever term you want to use, we'll just say you ought not to have a romantic, intimate relationship with someone who is not saved, someone who is lost. And you'll also do yourself a favor and not have that kind of relationship with somebody who who is approaching God's word in the Bible 
a completely different way than you are, all right? It's just, there's going to be, that's, that's a completely different side note, all right? I just chased a rabbit, all right? Boom, the rabbit's dead. Let's get back to the topic. You'll help yourself out, all right? So that's the principle of the unequal yoke. Let's go to Hebrews 13. I referenced this verse, but we want to now look at it a little bit deeper. And I want to talk to you now about the principle of reserved romance. Reserved romance. Look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 4. All right, everybody see this? I want you to see some of these verses for yourself so you remember what they are. It says, marriage is honorable in all. So God is saying, marriage, good thing. Two thumbs up. I created it. I made it. Um, it's, it functions for my purposes. It's good. Marriage is honorable in all. Everything about a healthy marriage is honorable. And God points out the next phrase. Marriage is honorable, honorable in all and the bed undefiled. Which means that the sexual relationship which is involved in marriage is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing dirty about it. It is undefiled. But notice the contrast. Marriage is good. The intimacy in marriage is good. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. You see that? Big contrast, right? Marriage is honorable. God's saying, I approve. And then God's saying, I disapprove pretty strongly, too. I'm going to judge. What are we talking about here? Well, the idea of whoremongers, um, it means a couple different things. One of the things that is, is inerrant with it is someone who is giving over their body, selling their body uh, for sin in that area. But in a general sense, the, the idea of being a whoremonger is someone who's involved in fornication or sex outside of marriage. So it says whoremongers and adulterers. Now, this is, you know, so fornication is kind of sex without the marriage relationship. Adultery is sex outside of the marriage, being unfaithful to your spouse. So God's kind of covering the whole gamut here. He's saying, you know, all of, all of sexual activity outside of marriage is off limits. And if it's pretty clear in the text, it's something that God will judge. That's pretty strong. So, as a general rule, God designed males, God designed females. He designed men and women, and as a general rule, He created us to be attracted to each other. He created us like puzzle pieces that go together. And for that attraction to eventually culminate in a physical relationship. God created you in that way. He created me in that way. As human beings, this is the draw that we have. God made us this way. So God designed for men and women to be attracted to each other and for that attraction to eventually culminate inside and within a marriage relationship and culminate in that physical relationship relationship as well. In other words, we could say it this way. God designed your desires for sex and for romance to be fulfilled in marriage. That is God's plan. That is God's desire. So God designed, God, God designed and God desires for 
romance, and I'll say romance of all forms, to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage or a committed relationship. That is God's plan. It's God's design. Because the, this is the reality, okay? We need to come to grips with the reality. The reality is you put a guy and a girl together for long enough, time together, you allow them to communicate and communicate privately, the time turns into a desire for communication, which turns into romantic feelings, which turns into a desire for physical touch, which turns into physical intimacy, which turns into the end. All right? God designed for everything to flow that way. The river is just, the, the current is taking you that way. As soon as you jump in, you're going. All right? There's no, there's no way... Uh, there is a way to stop it. I, I should say that, and I did write that down. Once, once the process is begun, it's incredibly difficult and or painful to stop. Once you've jumped in, swimming against the current is incredibly difficult, and even if you are able to get out of the water, it's painful. There's consequences as a result. Whether that is a messy breakup or whether that is ending in sin. Which is why God designed romance to occur within the marriage relationship. And God designed the, the, uh, the, uh, the mental side, the emotional side of romance to be reserved for a relationship that is committed to marriage. So mental romance emotional romance, and especially physical romance should be reserved for one person and one person only, your spouse, the one who you're going to marry. One person. And this is especially true for, for turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is especially true in this area. I mean, I, I don't think there's any agree, a disagreement that fornication, the actual act, that is wrong. That's reserved for marriage. But God doesn't just draw the line there. He draws the line here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Look at verse number 1. It says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now what does that mean? You can get hung up on that verse. What does that mean? Because I'm pretty sure um, I probably shook a few ladies' hands at church on Sunday. Oh, no. Wait, what is that? And some people have even said, ah, that's, that's why they've discounted this verse. But again, we need to understand verses within context. What is the context here? Verse 2. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. We are talking about romantic touch. And everybody knows the difference. When you shook the old lady's hand at church on Sunday, nothing went on. When you touch someone who there's, there's some romantic feelings or there could be feelings, all of a sudden, it's like, uh, you know, the buzzers start going off. Beep, deep, 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 you know, Ooh, something's happening, all right? Or was that one Disney movie where it's like, girl, 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 you know? Yeah, there's a difference between the two. Romantic touching, this is especially true. That should be reserved for marriage and marriage alone. 
I think the Bible's pretty clear. Now, some people have tried to explain this away. I'm looking at the verse and I'm saying, so sometimes it helps in interpretation uh, and just meditating on the scriptures to just flip things around and reverse it. Okay, so let's reverse the words. What's the opposite of good? Um, let's see. So if it, it is good for a man not to touch, what's the opposite of not touching? Touching. So flip it around. It is good for a man not to touch a woman, so therefore it is, a, it is bad for a man to touch a woman. I mean, you can't, you can't get around what it, it says what it says. You can't get around it. God designed, and what, what's the principle we're talking about? We're, we're talking about the principle of reserved romance. Romance is designed to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage, especially physical romance and romantic touch within the bounds of marriage. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 6. We have another warning in this area. Proverbs 6, look at verse 24. Because there's always that temptation. There's a strong draw. There's a strong desire. And I want to, I want to tell you as young people, it's, it's, it's okay to say this in the right way. You're going to have desires in this direction. God designed you physically to have those desires. Okay? And there's always going to be a temptation to say, I see the lines, the clear principles that God has drawn. So certainly it wouldn't be bad to just play around a little bit. I won't go all the way. I won't go too far. I'll just play around with it. Well, notice the context and what is said here in Proverbs 6. Look at verse 24. He's talking about how 23 says the commandment is a lamp, the law is a light. They're the way of life. And why are they the way of life? Because they keep thee, keep you, verse 24, keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. For by means of a whorish woman... A man is brought to a piece of bread, and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. All right, so what are we talking about? What is the context? We're talking about a relationship that is sinful in this idea of romance that's being enjoyed outside of marriage. A physical relationship that's enjoyed outside of marriage. And notice what the next verse says. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? So he that goeth in to his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her shall not be innocent. What happens when you take fire into your bosom? You've got a coat and you take an open flame and you stick it in there and try to hide it. What's going to happen? You're going to be burned. What's going to happen if you take red-hot coals and, 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 and uh, lay them out on the ground and walk on them? You're going to be burned. So what God is saying is, okay, this, this issue starts well before the, the, the sexual act. Well before then. You play around with fire. You play around with this issue and you don't understand the biblical principles surrounding it. Guess what? You're going to get hurt. You're going to get burned. 
And I know you do not fully understand this at this stage of life that you're in. I think if you try, you can understand to some extent. But you don't fully understand. There were a lot of these things that I sort of like, okay, I understand because of what the adults in my life are telling me. When I got married, it was like, oh, I get it now. So God's put some wisdom in your life. These are very real principles. They're very helpful. And we ought not to play around with this issue. We ought not to play around with romance, feelings of romance, thoughts of romance, physical contact of romance, and especially the act of romance, the fulfillment of romance itself. Because God designed it to, to all flow in that direction. Okay, so there's the principle of unequal, uh, the unequal yoke. There's the principle of reserved romance. God designed for your desires for romance to be fulfilled, but only within marriage. Okay, number three. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I know we're looking at a lot of passages, but I hope this helps to communicate that this is not just one verse that's being taken out of context. It's not just a hobby horse. This is a representation of what all of the Bible is teaching on this issue. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The principle is this. It is the principle of defrauding, or you could put a little or a little slash to help you understand this, the principle of committed relationships. Because I'll make this statement, and I'll try to demonstrate this as we go along. The statement is this. Where there is no commitment, defrauding will take place. And I think you'll see what I mean by that in just a second. Look here in 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 3, so you can see all of the context. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. There's some big words in there. Fornication is obviously, we've defined what that is. We understand what that is. To abstain means to not participate in it. And we understand that it's God's will for us to be sanctified in that issue. Sanctification. What, is, what does it mean to be sanctified? All at once. What does it mean to be sanctified? To be set apart. Alright, so here is the fornication over here, it is God's will that I be set apart from that. Okay, well, how do I do that? Well, let's keep reading, all right? So this, verse 4, says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. All right, pause for a second. Every one of you should possess his vessel. What is your vessel? your body okay all right you got a vessel that you live in all right it's your little house that you carry around everywhere it's like the little hermit crab all right this but the body is the shell so you are the little hermit crab the your body is the shell you carry your body everywhere it's the place where you live okay so god just says all right you should know how to possess it you should know how to use it you should know where to take it where to not to take it what to do with it what not to do with it to know how to possess your vessel in this area of fornication, all right? In sanctification, being separate from it, from it and living in a way that is honorable. Look in verse 5. This would be the opposite. Not in the lust of concupiscence, which basically 
the word concupiscence has the idea uh, of, of um, any sort of sexual sin or sex outside of God's boundary. So not in that area, not in the, 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 the base lusts of your flesh, even as the Gentiles which know not God. And you notice it's a colon again. This is all one sentence. The sentence starts in verse 3 and continues on now into verse 6, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as we have forewarned you and testified. Now the sentence ends, and he restates it, verse 7, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God who hath given us or given unto us his Holy Spirit. So what is the context of these verses? It's the sub exact subject that we're talking about. That's the context. And it's God's will for us to be set apart from all forms of sanctification. In order to do that, verse number six, we have to avoid going beyond and defrauding our brother in any manner. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Well, the idea of going beyond that word means, to, to go beyond means to step over, to make a trespass, to overreach. Okay, that's what it means to go beyond. The word defraud means to gain or to take advantage of another. And again, the idea of overreaching. See, I'm still not picking this up. Well, Noah Webster just de de defines defrauding as, or the idea of it defraud, it means to withhold wrongfully from another that which is due to him. Now, you have to think a little bit to think, okay, what is the point that he's trying to make in this context? Because defrauding can be stealing, just stealing from someone. Like I could defraud Josh of his notebook, or, for example. You know, I could sneak it and steal it. Um, but he's not talking about things. He's talking about this, this area of moral purity. What does it mean to go beyond and defraud? But think now back to our previous principle. God designed the male and female relationship to culminate, to reach its peak in the unreserved giving of ourselves to each other. There is no more honest and open relationship than the physical relationship between a man and his wife, between man and woman. There's no more intimate, open relationship than that. And God designed for the male and female relationship to go there, to end there. Or not to end, that, that sounds really bad. It's to culminate. It's the, it's the peak, it's the pinnacle. All right? That's, that was God's design. So, if God designed for the male and female relationship to culminate in the unreserved giving of yourselves and the unreserved giving of your body and intimacy to the other person, which is what God designed for that relationship to be, you're giving of yourself to your spouse, and your spouse is giving of themselves to you. If God designed it for it to end that way, and you're playing around in the areas you know, before that, because I trust none of you are involved in actually that, but you're playing around in those areas, you get the ball rolling, you both jump into the river, what's happening is you are saying, here I am, here I am, you may have me, you may have me, oh, but not, not there, not that far, we've got to stop right here. 
you're defrauding them. When there is no commitment in, in, the, in a romantic relationship, and this is not just romance in the teens. This is romance in the 20s. This is romance in the 30s. All right? God designed it for it to go somewhere, to end somewhere. When you say, hey, we're not going there, we're not going to end there because, you know, I have some boundaries, I have some standards. You're defrauding that other person. You said, by your behavior, you said, you may have me. I'm giving myself to you. And in that romance, you, you're saying that I, I'm, I'm, I'm promising myself to you. One day this is going to go somewhere. One day this is going to culminate somewhere. And then you renege on that. That's defrauding. You, you, are, you are offering it to them. You know, you're like the, the carrot in front of the donkey. And as soon as he goes to bite, you know, fooled you. And even if that's not your intent, that's what happens. That's what happens when... Uh, a a guy and a girl get in a relationship and they begin fooling around with this idea of romance. They've jumped in the river and they're they're flowing. Even if they're trying to kick against the current, it's it's flowing. And they're making promises, not verbally, not like, hey, you know, this I'm I'm making a contract with you, but you're making promises to the other person of this is what I'm, I'm, I'm willing to give myself to you, and then you are reneging on those promises. Outside of commitment. Which means that if we're going to follow this principle of defrauding, that romance is out of bounds unless it is within a relationship that everyone has agreed this relationship is ending in marriage. Now, I have to throw in a caveat because everybody says this, but very few people actually mean it. It's like, right, yeah. How many times have I, we're getting married, Pastor, it's, it's okay because we're going to get married anyway. It's defrauding. Here's a way to think about it. The Bible only mentions three stages of life. There is singleness, Okay, Paul talks about we're going we're gonna to deal with some of those passages in just a little bit. There's singleness. Obviously, there's marriage. And then in between, there is, depending on uh, where you're reading, there's the betrothal, espousal, engagement. We might use that term today. Betrothal, that word is used mostly in the Old Testament. Espousal is used more so in the New Testament. We use the term engagement. Don't let the words trip you up. The idea is this. It's a relationship that is committed that we are moving towards marriage, that we are, we're, 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 you know, we're committed to this. I don't know how else to define the word commitment, all right? We're all in. This is where we would like things to end. This is where we would like things to go. Again, I'm using the word end. Marriage is not an end, like your life is over, all right? But this is where we intend for it to go. So if you are not ready for marriage, which is the commitment, right? If you are not ready for that, then you are not ready for romance. If you are not ready for marriage, then you are not ready for romance, whether mental romance, emotional romance, and obviously physical romance. But see, they, they, they all go in the same direction. They, they're, they're, they're all designed to culminate the same place. And if you decide to play around with romance, you will get drawn, you will get pulled, you will get sucked 
beyond what is biblically proper to go. And that's why you hear things, why I have heard things. I never intended it to go this way. And as much as I've sat with some young people with tears in their eyes, and they say, Pastor Gable, I never intended it for it to go this way. Say, has that actually happened? Yes, it has. Way too many times. I never intended it for it, for it to go this way. Now, I, in my heart, I really feel for them because they have gotten to themselves a wound that will, by the grace of God, can, can scab over, can heal, but it, it's going to be a scar. It's never going to go away. They're going to carry it for the rest of their lives. However, I wouldn't say this to them in that moment, but I would say to them, you jumped in the river. When you were warned over and over and over again, that river goes somewhere. Are you ready to go where that river is going? Oh, no, not yet. Are you ready to get married tomorrow? Oh, no, not yet. Then, then romance, it's not the time for romance. And this is what just boggles my mind because if you guys only understand the rule, we're not supposed to date. As soon as you get out of high school, it's like all of that's gone and all of it's open and I can enjoy, enjoy whatever I want. And, and you're disconnected from the principles that God has given to help you. And you don't have help. And so you're just floundering around like a little kid in the stream and you're going to drown That's the principle of defrauding. And if you decide to play around with romance, mental romance, emotional romance, and physical romance, if you play around in those areas, you're going to get drawn and sucked far beyond where you wanted to go. That's the principle of defrauding. God designed for it to culminate in some way. If you pull back on that design, then you're guilty of defrauding. And it says... Very clearly that God is the avenger of such. Now, that's a pretty strong phrase. I don't want to violate this. Because i got to go toe-to-toe-to-toe -to -toe -to -toe with God, and he's the avenger of all such who do this. Number four, we've got to move on. There's the principle of the unequal yoke. There's the principle of reserved romance. There's the principle of defrauding. There's also the principle of preparation. Turn to Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 27. We make a mistake as, I just said we, I guess I'm not single, so. But I made this mistake, so I'm going to put myself in your shoes and say, I've been there, done that, and it's one of those things I wish I could go back and kind of change a little bit and tweak in my life. And the idea is this. idea is marriage is the promised land. And some of this is the culture that we live in. Being with someone is the promised land, and when you get there, all of your problems go away. Now, I, understand. I mean, again, we started with romance is wonderful, created by God. The relationship between a, a man and his wife is a wonderful relationship. However, it's not, not all of your problems don't go away when you get married. And so you can view your single years, you're just pining away for, I don't want to be single. How can I get out of this? How can I end this as soon as possible? 
And I know it's a draw. It was a draw in my life. It's a draw in your life, you know, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing to be thinking about the future, preparing for the future. However, you need to understand this truth, that your single years are a time of preparation. They are a gift of God for you to be able to prepare and to use your freedom and ability to serve Him. Preparation needs to come first before romance. Look at Proverbs 24, verse 27. I, I love this verse. This has helped me, and, and I've been able to help others with this. It just says simply, Prepare thy work without, and make it fit for thyself in the field. There's a semicolon. And afterwards, build thine house. So prepare your work in the field. Make it fit for yourself. Afterwards, build your house. Here's how we do it, okay? In our minds, we build our house. Oh, and our pretty little house. See, it's got the white picket fence around it. 2.5 children. Ah, but what's most important is the one. And some of you have already, you know, you've, you know, you've kind of, there's a little bit of a crush there, and so you actually have somebody's face in that house. Like, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful with that person, with that young man? I know all the other young men are jerks, but not him. Not him. He's, he's really nice and kind. And you have built a house in your head, and that's what you want. And then it's like, oh, well, I guess i got to do something so I can get what I want. No, 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 that's, that's the, it's flipped around, right? You start with preparing your work in the field and making it fit for yourself. What in the world does that mean? Can I translate for you, young men? That means you need to have a career. That's what that means. Not a job. Not, I work at Burger King so I can afford rent. <laughs> We're ready to get married. No. Your work. This is a career as a farmer, Okay. You can make a living. You can support a family. You can support a wife. Prepare your work in the field. Make it fit for yourself. And then start thinking about who do I want in my home, in my house. Preparation comes first. Now, that's physical preparation. That's just cold heart. And, and for guys, I can make this really easy for you. Until you have decided what your career is and you have a job, earning the money that your career is going to expectedly bring you, you have no business thinking about romance. Make it real easy. Ladies, it's a little bit more difficult um, for you to kind of be that clear. But for me, that, that really helps. All right, that really helps define it for me. But you know what? There's something beyond physical preparation, you know, having money and being prepared in that way. There's also character preparation. You say, if I can't have this relationship with this young lady or this young man, then why did God give me these feelings? That's a really good question, actually. Why did God give you those feelings? Why did God create the, 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 you know, the compatibility between men and, and women? Why did he make that? And why, why are you stuck in this period of time in your life right now where it's different than you when you were six? I mean, you didn't have romantic thoughts and feelings when you were five and six. I mean, you probably played house with, you know, a girl and not, didn't think anything of it, you know, or, or a, a boy, whatever. It just didn't, you know, but you go through that period of time. Now in your teen years, you've got those desires. It's not fair, God. Why, why did you give me these desires and I can't fulfill them? 
Here's what I think the answer to that question is. Why did God allow you to have some of those feelings? Because you need to learn how, right now, to control your romantic feelings. You need to learn how to refuse to act upon those romantic feelings. You need to learn even how to starve those feelings. Do you, do you know that you have a measure of control over your feelings? Because your feelings are fed by your thoughts, and your thoughts are actually fed by what you decide to put in front of your face, what you decide to look at. We're going to talk about that in just a, in a second. But you have a measure of control over those feelings. Let me help some of you who, you know, you know, hey, there's some feelings there, and you haven't shared them with anyone. It's just between you and God. What should you do? Well, if you know those feelings exist, this is your opportunity to learn how not to act on those feelings. I'm not going to act upon. And you understand what I mean by that. Because acting on them is, you know, being near them, talking to them, make sure you get on their team playing volleyball, make sure you sit in church in a place where you can just kind of glance over during the preaching and, oh, yes, aren't they lovely? Um, That's feeding them. Starving them is... All right, perhaps God has something for that in the future, but not right now. And so I'm going to refuse to allow that to affect what I do. I'm going to back away a little bit and starve those feelings. You say, why do we have to learn how to do that? That's not fair. I mean, married people, they don't have to do that. Oh, but there's where you're wrong. Because you have to exhibit just as much control over your feelings when you are married than when you are not married. Now, granted, it helps to have somebody. I'll I'll give you that. However, guys, you're going to be around women at work. You're going to spend a lot of time with women at work. And by the way, they'll probably not have any boundaries, especially in this area. So they'll flirt with you. They'll be close to you. They'll talk to you. And you might even start to sense there's some there's some like feelings starting to, whoa, whoa. I mean, how would you feel? How would you feel if, let's just say, okay, let's just say you're, you're dead, okay? How would you feel if uh, every Monday night your dad called his lady friends and they enjoyed the evening chatting on the phone while your mom was taking care of you? How, how would you feel about that? Any problem with that? Milk is like. All right, switch it around. How would you feel about your mom twice a week, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays, having a phone call with, you know, this guy who's really nice. He's just a sweet man. And sharing their feelings. Do you have a problem with that? Oh, uh, yeah. Why do you have a problem with that and not a problem with when it happens outside of marriage because it's the same it's the same thing right you have to you have to learn how to cut off those feelings starve them maybe a cut off is the wrong way to say because you i mean you're not you're not a bad person because you have those feelings but you do learn you do now have to learn what to do about it those feelings are not going to affect my behavior in fact I may act, actually have to do some specific things to starve those feelings, to back away, to not feed 
the thoughts which feed the feelings. That's the principle of separation. Or, or, sorry, not separation. The principle of preparation. And you will need this ability just as much after marriage as you will before. So God's saying, I'm going to give you a time where you can learn how to develop this. And by the way, this is just part of growing up. It's maturing. An immature person is feelings-driven, emotion-led. A spiritual, mature person is spirit-led, truth-led. And that applies in so many different areas, not just this one. That's number four. We need to get one more. Number five, the principle of parental participation. And I use the word participation on purpose. This is not approval. It's easy to get approval. It's easy to just drag the the special someone home and say, Mom, Dad, this is who it is. Do you approve? If not, I'm going to make your life a living hell. (laughs) That's approval. Okay, I guess i got to go along with it. No, participation. When it comes to finding that special someone, now this doesn't happen right now, okay, because you're not ready. This is for when you are ready. When you are ready, there should be an open, completely open and honest dialogue back and forth between you and your parents before the romantic thoughts exhibit. Why is that? Well, let me give you some reasons real quickly because I'm running into my time and I do want to get finished here. You need your parents because your feelings are deceptive. Jeremiah 17, 9 talks about the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Your heart, your feelings, your emotions are extremely deceptive. You you need some help. Your emotions are great companions, but they're terrible guides. And let me tell you, Bambi learned it and he was right. Twitter patient is real. It's a real thing. So that's one thing you can learn from a Disney movie, all right? That's probably the only thing you can learn. Twitter patient is real. It happens, and it's, prob- and it's going to happen to you, all right? It's going to happen. So you need your parents because, boy, your feelings, your emotions are deceptive. Number two, you need your parents because your desires can be sinful. In Mark chapter 20, uh, the disciples were eating the, the corn from the field, and the Pharisees were like, oh, they've not properly washed. How can your disciples eat with not properly washed hands? And Jesus said, it's not what goes in that defiles somebody. I mean, your body can deal with it. Your body is an incredible machine. It can deal with all sorts of stuff. You have no idea how many insects and how many, how many gross things you have consumed unknowingly that your body has dealt with. So Jesus is saying, look, it has a way of getting rid of that stuff. It's not what comes in that defiles. It's what comes out from the heart. That's me. That's you. Your desires can be sinful. You need your parents as, as a guide to, to help you see, no, those desires are sinful, to help curb those. Number three, you need your parents' involvement because your perspective is often incomplete. In 1 Timothy 2.22, the Bible says, flee youthful lusts. Which means there are specific desires, specific lusts that are youthful, that are specific areas in which you are weak. And you need someone who is not youthful. No offense to your parents. But they're not youthful. They have teenagers. They have a, they have a little bit of experience that you don't have. And that goes with um, number four. You need your parents because your life experience is inadequate. 
In Hebrews 13, 7, it talks about obeying them that had the rule over you and, and whose faith follow. Their experience, their faith, their walk with God. Yours is inadequate, it's short, it's small. You need someone to lean on who has that spiritual experience. Can I just summarize all of that? And I know I'm moving really quickly, but do not treat your parents the way Samson treated his parents or else you will end up like Samson did. Do you remember what Samson did to his parents? He saw a girl. He said, woo. And he went home to his dad and he said, get her for me. By the way, that was parental approval. It wasn't participation, but it was approval because his dad went and did it. Don't treat your parents like Samson treated his parents or you're going to wind up like Samson did. And his life was a mess. It was a wreck. It's more of a tragedy than anything else. I told you that was the last principle, but I didn't have my notes turned. There's one more. Number six, the principle of purity. We, were, we sort of stopped looking there in 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's go back there one more time. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 7. And I'll just summarize and say it this way. It is your job to maintain your purity. Your job. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Verse 7 says, God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. There is the principle of, your, of purity. It's, it's your job to maintain your purity. And let me just break this down so that you understand. It is your job to maintain your physical purity. That's your vessel. Possessing your vessel. Physical purity. Abstain from fornication. It's pretty obvious. But it is also your job to maintain your emotional maturity. Do you realize in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says the unmarried woman carried for, careth for things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and spirit? And that's a difficult to understand passage sometimes, but suffice it to say, if you summarize it, it is the idea that in your single years you have the opportunity to live unto God. To be wholly focused on God. He says, The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord that she might be holy both in body and spirit. You have that freedom and capability to give yourself wholly to God. Once you have a spouse, there's other considerations. There's other things that there's responsibilities that you have to maintain. Both men and women, they have responsibilities to each other. And so you don't have that freedom. And so until that time comes, keep yourself emotionally pure. What does that mean? Don't allow your emotions to just have free reign in your heart. Don't put that little person's face in your home and just be like, oh man, it would be so nice to be married to them. And you're just imagining this wonderful life and all of this, you know, children. And oh, if I could only have that. You're now emotionally impure. You're having a relationship with someone in your mind. And again, God designed for that to lead somewhere. And you're giving yourself away. Physical purity, emotional purity. And normally I would address this just to the guys, but I mean, in our society, it's for both. This is, involves mental purity too, because Jesus said, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after hath committed adultery plain as day. 
Guys, are you protecting your mind through your eyes? What are you looking at? What are, what are your online viewing habits? What do you look at when you go to the mall? What do you look at when you're out in public? That's your mental purity. And I wish it was just a guy problem, but I guess today it's not. You must be very careful what you feed your mind through your eyes. Job said, I've made a commitment with my eyes. Why then should I think? See how he, he said, eyes think? What I look at affects what I think. I've made a commitment with my eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Because your eyes, what you look at, determines what you think about. And what you think about will determine and affect your feelings. And then your feelings will affect what you desire. And then what you desire will affect what you do. So be very careful about what you input through your eyes. Ladies, this this involves... And you need, to be, you need to be careful about this. How much romance you ingest. Because that appeals to you. It feels good. But just be careful that you're not pumping it in. Because guess what? Now you're going to... I need to... Those, the, your eyes are going to determine what you think about. And then what you think about is going to determine... It's going to affect how you feel. And how you feel is going to affect your desires. And, how, and your desires are going to affect what you do. So just be careful about what you feed your mind. That's the principle of purity. And it is your job that God has given you to learn how to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor. It's your job to maintain your purity. All right. Let me give you a couple things real quickly, and I will be fast. What do I do now? You say, you mean I can't get married when I'm a sophomore in high school? No, no, you can't. I'm going to graduate this year. I can, I can get married right after I graduate, right? Um, pro- mm. Talk to your parents about that, will you? What, but what do you do now then? Say, so if we're not allowed to do that, what are we supposed to do now? Here's what you're supposed to do now. Invest in your relationship with your parents. Give your heart to them, not to a special someone, all right? Proverbs says, my son, give me thine heart. Invest in your relationship with your parents. Build that. Number two, guard your heart and protect your purity. Let me say this. Battling the, the, the romantic spirit, the dating spirit, is a constant struggle. You are going to falter. You are going to fall in this area. It's, I don't want to say it's okay, but you know it happens. You're a sinner just like I am. We're, we're flawed, okay? We're going we're gonna to wind up stumbling in this area. It's, it's, it's okay God has a path of, uh, of forgiveness and release from that. Don't allow, because the devil, what I'm trying to say is the devil's going to come to you and say, you messed up, you shouldn't have, you, you, you're, you've gone too far in this area, and so you might as well just, just go, go for it all the way, because you can't be like God wants you to be. You're not good enough, you're not capable enough, and he wants to defeat you and keep you down. There's going to be some times that you fall. The just man gets up again, all right? Get some help. Be honest with your parents and say, look, I'm having feelings toward this individual. Can you, I, and I know I don't, I don't want necessarily those feelings. I know it's not time. Can you help me with that? Get some help. Guard your heart and protect your purity. Number three, prepare for the idea of marriage, not the person of marriage. Prepare for the concept of marriage, 
and not that special someone that might be in your mind. All right? Learn to distinguish the two. Number four, be, a, be friendly to everyone. Attention towards all, intention towards none. All right? Be friendly to each other. And if you sense a crush, learn to control and starve those feelings. Crushes are kind of part of life. They're going to happen. It doesn't mean you're a horrible person. It just means now is your chance, your opportunity to control those feelings. And number five, focus on serving and seeking after God. That's what 1 Corinthians 7 is talking about. Use that time for God. I hope this has been a help to you. I know it's been a little, a little bit longer today, but this is, a, this is an involved topic. I hope you will go back and look at these principles. If, I know it would be weird. Memorize the principles. Know them from the Bible so that they can guide you now. And now it's pretty easy. Those kind of thoughts and relationships are off the table. But especially when you get to the point of graduating, now you can really use those principles. Because now you're going to have to determine, am I ready? Um, is it time for this yet? Um, don't just learn the rules and learn how to, well, I just don't want to get in trouble. Okay, it's great not to get in trouble. But what's better is, I want to know what, what God has to say, so I don't, and I want to put up some rules my own so that I don't violate what God has to say. Hope this has been a help to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, I, I feel like I could have done a better job this, this afternoon, but Lord, your word was presented. Truth was there. We saw it for ourselves. And I pray that uh, you would help us to make some application. I know there's probably some young people in here that need to make a commitment before God to begin to control their thoughts and their feelings. Maybe even some starvation of some feelings needs to take place. I pray that you'd help them. I pray that you'd encourage them today. That you uh, that uh, there is there is answers. There there is hope, and you are there to help them. And I pray that they would lean on you and submit to to your Spirit and have the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to even win the win the war of the mind and the emotions. And I pray that. Um, you would protect some young people in these areas so that they can honor and glorify you in their spirit and in their bodies, which belong to you. Thank you for our study this week. In Jesus' name we pray.